Well, as it's Communion Sunday, I thought it might be uh, good to centre our minds and hearts upon the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in any event, it's always a good subject to be looking at. It's something that should often be the centre of our attention. When I was pastor in Essex, I think more people were converted at a communion service uh, than any other. New people came in and they perhaps would break bread and you could speak to them about, well, tell me about your conversion. <clears throat> Maybe they hadn't had one and you could explain the situation to them and others would come and perhaps they didn't break bread and you could talk to them and say, I see you didn't break bread this morning. You know, tell me a little bit about yourself and that would often lead to what one might call a conversion a situation or conversation. Now, if I remember rightly, I preached a simplified version of this sermon uh, to the Climb Kids Club many, many years ago. Um, so if any of you were there, I'm not going to apologise for preaching it again, and, and you're not going to apologise for forgetting all about it. Uh, that seems fair. The account of Christ's crucifixion, you know, is a, is a very simple and straightforward, uh, the way it's set out in the Gospels. And yet, we can go and get books that are inches thick that will explain all the implications of what Christ was doing on the cross. And they're both right, aren't they? A child may understand the crucifixion. They can understand that that Jesus, God in the flesh, came to die for sinners. They can understand the awfulness of being crucified on the cross. There is a, a fairly simple understanding of how our sin was laid upon him. And then, of course, the wonder of Christ's resurrection. You know, to many people involved in this account that we've read, it was just another day. Tomorrow's another day for us. We'll get up and get on with the things that we have to do. And so it was on what we call Good Friday. The soldiers woke up that morning and uh, what are we going to do today? It's a day of crucifixions. It was a common thing. Thousands of people were crucified at that particular time. Yet here is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, bearing the sins of his people, making a way for our salvation. Here is all the old, the types of the Old Testament, the shadows of the Old Testament, all finding their fulfilment on this day. It was to be a day that was the pinnacle of history. But to the soldiers, it was just another day. We need to just get on with the day. And I want us to think this morning of the simplicity of this event by looking at what people brought to the cross. People still take things to the cross, usually their doubts. Uh, Sometimes they take their hatred there. Uh, And it's strange how this simple account of the crucifixion of Christ, the simplicity of the gospel, still makes the devil shake in his boots. Because this is where he was finally defeated. And if there's ever a message that he would not want preached, it is the message of the cross. So let's see then for a moment here what things people brought to the cross, what we can learn from that. And then a little later, and much more briefly, we'll look at what God took to the cross. And then we'll look at what we can take from the cross. First of all then, things that people took to the cross. A hammer and a bag of nails. Common enough thing, isn't it? Someone had to take them. Someone got up that morning and thought, "Now ah, I've got to get the hammer and I've got to get the nails. So they went to the store. Didn't bring probably nice shiny nails that we have. They were very large nails. They were very... Uh, probably um, handcrafted. It wasn't machinery to do them, was it? They were rough iron nails. Nails to help hold Christ 
on the cross. Nails that would leave such a mark in the hands of Christ that later on, uh, Thomas, he says there, see in his hands the print of the nails. They were large enough to put a finger in. You go to some places of worship and they'll claim to have an actual nail from the cross. You know, whether they have or not is totally irrelevant, isn't it? The actual cross, the actual nails are just means of crucifixion. When we sing at the cross, at the cross and such hymns, we're not really thinking of the wooden cross. We're not thinking of the nails. We're thinking of our lovely Saviour who was crucified there. There is no glory in the cross of wood. It is just a cross of wood. And if we make it any more, when we begin to break the commandments. Someone took a bag of nails. You know, people still take nails to the cross. People find it convenient that Jesus should still be upon that cross. He might have been a good man, probably a prophet, but no one can rise from the dead. He's still on the cross. He was buried somewhere. He, he's there. He, he did not rise. Some people find it convenient to believe that because, come what may, they don't want to meet a saviour. They don't want to be accountable to a risen saviour. They don't want to be accountable for the gospel. Why bring nails? To kill? The nails themselves didn't kill. I'm told that actually those uh, who put the nails into the hands and the feet of Christ and, and all these crucifixions, that they were quite skilled in what they were doing. That if they hit a vein and, and the blood poured out, they would die too quickly. So they would want to put those nails just in the right place. The nails themselves probably didn't kill. They just helped. There was the sun. There was dehydration. There was blood loss. There was a broken heart. But the nails helped keep people on the cross until life expired. Christ didn't need those nails, did he? What was it that actually held him on the cross? Yes, someone brought a bag of nails, but that wasn't what held Christ there. It, it was firstly his love for sinners that kept him there. He went willingly to the cross because he loved a people that were not very lovely. What do we sing in one of the hymns? Was it the nails, O Saviour, that bound thee to the tree? Nay, it was thine everlasting love, thy love for me, for me. And we can sometimes get caught up in, you know, the, the story of the cross again. But we have to remember, don't we, so often that Christ on the cross was there not just for a load of people, but he was there, as the hymn says, for me. I've mentioned this before, but when I was a, a very small lad and uh, I would sit in the congregation and if it was a communion service, the brethren would take the bread round and they'd stop in front of everyone and say, his body was broken for you, dear brother, and for you, dear sister. And they'd say that in front of everyone. Again, I'm not suggesting we should do that. But even as a small child, it made me realise Christ died for him and Christ died for her. There's an individual work that went on there. It wasn't the nails that held him there. It was his love for you and me. Scripture tells us, doesn't it, that he loved a people before he ever died. He loved a people before we were ever born. He loved us despite our sin and rebellion. And he knew all that would happen in our lives. He knew the thoughts we'd have and the deeds that we would do. And he knew that we were going to be born in darkness and we would be dead in trespass and sin. But he also knew that on that cross he was going to take our sin and that he was going to bring us to newness of life. 
It was his love for sinners that kept him there. What else kept him there? It wasn't the bag of nails. It was his eternal purpose from eternity past. An eternal purpose. He determined before the world was created that this is what was going to have to happen because the fall would come and there would need to be a redemption. What did Jesus pray in the garden? If it be possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. It wasn't possible that that should pass. He had to take it and he had to drink it and drink it all up. It was not possible that there was going to be any other way to get you and I into heaven. We read in Acts chapter 2, Christ was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God and him they took, it says, by wicked hands and crucified. And those few words show us the, almost the paradox there of what was happening from a human point of view and what was happening from a godly point of view. From a human point of view, they took him and they crucified him. But from God's point of view, this was the predeterminate counsel of God. He, he set his face steadfast to go to Jerusalem because that was what was determined and that is what, what was needed. What else held him on the cross? The anticipation of joy. It seems a strange thing, doesn't it? We read in scriptures, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And that took some enduring, didn't it? We, we can't uh, really enter into the agony of the cross. But he endured that because of the joy that was set before him. And just think from what that joy is. That joy is having you and I in heaven. You know, we might invite one another around for a meal or a cup of tea. We think it was nicely called, wasn't it? But, but you see, Christ says, no, it gives me great joy to invite you to a home I'm preparing for you. And because of the joy, and, and how is it that, that we, we can't fully understand that God, the creator of heaven and earth, can actually experience joy at having you and I in heaven? It's amazing. The more I think about it, the more amazing it is. And my friends, if, if having you and I in heaven, and the only way you could do it was going to the cross, and Christ said, because of the joy that's going to come later, I will endure the cross, how much more should Christ on the cross give us joy? For the joy of the Lord is our strength. So someone brought the nails. But then also, someone brought the dice, or something similar, it says they cast lots for his garment. <clears throat> They'd already shared out the other clothing, but this piece was made of one piece of cloth. They didn't want to spare, uh, spoil it. Uh, these things were quite valuable in that day. It was a woven piece of cloth. So they said, let's gamble for it. Now this garment was a, a priestly type garment. And here was the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, offering himself not only as priest, but also as sacrifice. And the law says in Leviticus 21 that a priest could not tear his garment. And yet the high priest at this time, we read in Matthew 26, and in verse 65 it says there, the high priest rent or tore his clothes, saying, Jesus has spoken blasphemy. What further evidence do we need of witnesses? Behold, you have heard his blasphemy. And his blasphemy was that he said he was the Messiah. And so the high priest at that time breaks the law of God by rending his garment. 
But Jesus, he keeps the law. And he kept all the law perfectly. And he kept it in your place and my place. His garment was not torn. But they gambled for it. We know that the veil in the temple was torn. But Christ's garment was not to be torn. Even as he was approaching death, he is keeping the holy law. And yet in the midst of all this precision, people were not noticing as such. Soldiers are just rolling out the dice or taking the straw. They're just gambling for Christ's garment. You know, people still gamble at the cross. They gamble that it wasn't true. Or they gamble that if it was true, it's not going to have anything to do with me. You know, they weigh up the odds. I want to live as I want to live. I'm I'm quite happy living like this. They look to the future and think, well, if the Bible is true, then, uh, you know, I'm I'm in a lot of trouble here. There is a hell that awaits. And and so they weigh up the odds. They do a risk assessment. And, of course, they get it wrong. And, And they risk all on their own lives. They gamble that it's not true. They have an inability to see the gospel for what it is. And they stake their all against Christ. You know, to be a Christian is the opposite, isn't it? We stake our all on Christ. On him our soul depends on on what he did in this chapter. We depend on that. If this is not true, then we're, we're all lost for all eternity. We may as well pack up and go home. What's the point of having churches and chapels? We stake our all on him, of all that he is, of all that he's done, of all that he's doing, and of all that he will do. We must, as the Lord said, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow the Lord Jesus. And it's when we're willing, isn't it, to to give up our stake, to give up all that we've got, as it were, realising that we have nothing to bring, and we cast our all on him, then We can seek his face. It was no chance that this man should die. And it would be no chance that he comes again in the clouds of bright glory. My friends, do you want to gamble against the predeterminate counsel of God? It's a great thing to gamble against, isn't it? The odds are certainty in the favour of God's word. So sadly, it seems that most of the world will still gamble at the cross. What did they take from him? They took his garment, didn't they? And people are happy to take things from Christ. People are happy to take the sunshine and the rain. People are happy to take their breath and their food. People are happy to look at the wonder of nature and all the wonderful gifts that God's given us. But that which they need most, the precious blood of Jesus, is left. And that's the reason he was on the cross. So someone brought some nails, someone brought some dice. The third thing, someone brought a sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. We know the Bible says Pilate wrote it and he put it on the cross. They needed some preparation, didn't it? Someone who's got to get some paint or some dye or something and, and, and write this out. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek and Latin, so it took a bit of time and a bit of thinking. A sign wasn't unusual. It was quite usual for uh, when someone was being crucified to have a sign around their neck, perhaps uh, saying what they'd done. But this was unusual. This was being nailed to the cross. Pilate's way of mocking those who had intimidated him, really, into moving Christ into a, a position to be crucified. 
It also meant that people of most nations could understand what was going on, at, at least in part. People still bring signs to the cross. They bring their own statement, don't they? Oh, I don't believe that. Or again, he was a mere man or a prophet, a figure in history perhaps. People have got their own little thoughts on, on what they can put over the cross, their thoughts about who Jesus was. It's not our thoughts that count, is it? It's what God says in his word, that this was Jesus Christ, the very son of God, and the centurion got it right, didn't he? Surely this was the son of God. When darkness veiled the sky, when the, the rocks rent and, and the veil was torn in two, The sign that Pilate wrote to bring to the cross was true. Jesus of Nazareth was king of the Jews. But he's also the saviour of sinners. He's also the lover of our souls. He's also the Lord of glory. He's also the altogether lovely one. And in one sense, by faith, and we say this with respect, as we see Christ on the cross by faith, and we see him in, in all of that situation. Well, he was marred more than any man, the scripture says. When we see him like that, we can say he's still, and perhaps mostly there, altogether lovely. Because there he hangs in my place and in your place. So someone brought a bag of nails, someone brought some dice, someone brought a sign, someone brought a bottle of vinegar. It might have been a bottle, but some container with vinegar in it. Psalm 69, 21 foretells even that detail. It says, in my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Verse 29 of our reading we read there. Now, there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. In other words, they put it on a long stick and, and kind of raised it up to him. Basically, sour wine. This was not the wine mixed with myrrh that was offered earlier to deaden pain. We read uh, in the other Gospels there that he, he refused that. He was not going to have deadened pain. He was going to take all the punishment. This was vinegar uh, to really quench thirst, but I don't think it really did that. You know, here is his last act was to take that which was bitter of all the lovely things he had created, when we think around the world, think of all the food and the textures and the tastes, when we think of, of everything that he did, that which he takes last is that which is most bitter and that which is offered to him. And it's the same today, isn't it? People still bring vinegar to the cross. They bring bitterness. It's what mankind still offers Christ. They still say, away with him, we want Barabbas. Again, you read some of the leaflets from Barnabas, from Release International, and all sorts of literature we have there. Whatever country in the world you go to, there is so much animosity against the people of God, and therefore against Christ himself. Go to China. Now, you can't use the internet with the word Christ in it. Uh, so many things you can't do. You're supposed to have, uh, if we were in China now, your faces would have uh, been registered as you came in by cameras and we were supposed to if we got any commandments up or any scripture we take them down we were supposed to put the thoughts up of their leader and uh, we, it, it, there were so many things and there would be no children children not allowed to be in the house of God you know if we don't follow the Lord Jesus Christ 
then the scripture says we follow the one who caused such grief. Ephesians 2 says we walk according to the course of this world. That is, if we're not a Christian, or if we are, this is how we walked before we were Christians. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. We were children of wrath, even as others. But then there's two words in that verse, and it must be one of the two most wonderful words in Scripture. It says, but God, but God. You see, that's who we were. We were children of wrath, even as others, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ, for by grace are ye saved. You see, Paul paints the picture of how dark it is to be outside of Christ. But immediately he comes in and says, but no, don't we won't stop there. But God, who is rich in mercy, he has provided this wonderful way of salvation. You know, to run with the devil is a bitter thing, a bitter thing to the Lord when he died for sinners. Why run with the devil when we can walk with a lovely saviour? Someone took the vinegar. Let me give you one more here then. Someone brought a crown of thorns. We spoke about this a little on Good Friday. Someone went out that day or the day before and went out to these bushes with horrendous thorns on and somehow, I don't know, in the garden we, we have a lot of brambles. You've always got these, you, you want leather gloves on to, to be able to touch them and they're only little thorns but these were long ones. Someone went out with a pair of something to cut and to weave it round to form some kind of crown. How sad that they were so determined, so sadistic to want to do that, to mock the Saviour. Someone brought that. And my friends, in a sense, if we don't crown him king of our lives, we're crowning him with thorns. He claims to be the only saviour of sinners and that he is, the son of the living God. And if we refuse those claims, if we refuse his offer of mercy, we really mock him. We're really saying, well, I'm not sure, I don't want to know. Or maybe we do know that we're not going to fall at his feet. My friends, today he's not crowned with thorns. We read he has a name above every name. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Revelation tells us when he comes, he will come as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So there's five things people took to the cross. A bag of nails, dice, a sign, vinegar, a crown of thorns. But secondly, and much more briefly, something that God took to the cross, or at least took upon the cross. Isaiah tells us the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isn't that amazing? I, I don't know how that can be, but that's what happened. Christ is there on the cross as our sin bearer. He is there to bear the weight of our sin and, and the wrath of his Father. It is a propitiation, it is an atonement, it is a covering of all our sin. It is the removal of our sin. For he was a scapegoat on which the hands were laid and, and let off into the wilderness. As well as the lamb that was slain. The awfulness of that sin he bore, the very wrath of his father. His death was the ultimate in physical, mental and spiritual pain. If he had not taken 
our sin. If God had not placed upon him our iniquity, his death would have been just another crucifixion. It would have been without purpose. But if we sung in that hymn, no. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, thirdly, what can we take from the cross? People brought all those things to the cross, and the Lord laid upon him my iniquity. What can I take from the cross? My friends, Christ died for sin and dealt with it so you can take forgiveness. Christ took our punishment, then we can take his righteousness. He took my filth, and we can take that righteousness from him. He died in my place. He died my death. Therefore, I can take eternal life. He took God's righteous anger. Therefore, I can take peace. These are things I can take from the cross. For Christ who died has risen again. He said, what can I bring to the cross? Can't bring good works. That's no good. Christ is the only one who could do a work for our salvation. Can't bring a ritual. That doesn't do any good. Doesn't replace what Christ did. We can't bring money. We can't buy what Christ did because he freely gives us that salvation. The hymn writer has it correct. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply. To thy cross, I cling. Nothing. It could be nothing in our hands. It's all a work of God's grace. So then, someone brought a bag of nails, a dice, a sign, vinegar, and a crown of thorns. The Lord brought my sin to lay upon him. And I can take from that cross forgiveness, righteousness, new life, and peace with God. A little bit of closing application then. My friends, as Christians, we ought to often ponder the cross and think about that. To consider him who endured so much for us. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. Remember his dying love as an act determined in ages past. But, but with a great intimacy of love for you. Do we love him as we ought? We tell him that not just in words, but by the way that we live, by the keeping of his commandments, by the way we love his word, his people, his day. Now the hymn says, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And finally this morning, if you don't know the Saviour, stop gambling at the cross. You can't win. You can't win. Why would you want to win? When you see you can't win, when you see there is nothing you can bring but your sinful self, another hymns that are just as I am, without one plea, but that Christ has died for me. Well, may the Lord bless these things to our souls and as we remember him on the cross, but now risen, glorified, and coming again. Amen.